0: Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 846 with Benjamin Goldberg.
1: I truly believe that restaurants that are not trying to get better every single day are inherently getting worse. And so not only is my role to try and grow the business and grow the people we're working with, but it's also to go back into the restaurants that we already have and try and find ways to keep pushing them forward so we're never regressing. Are you ready for it?
0: Today's episode is brought to you by DiageoBarAcademy.com, and I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo because we have such similar missions. We want to share knowledge and transform the industry. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better they are consistently raising the bar on industry standards. And no matter what your skill level is or knowledge or availability, there's something for you at DiageoBarAcademy.com. They have master classes and live events. And if you can't make those master classes or live events, there's recordings so you can watch it on demand at your convenience at www.diageobaracademy.com. That is D I A G E O baracademy.com. Get over there. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge, a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food cost in real time. Margin Edge gives you your prime cost daily, so there's no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets instant insights to manage food costs, labor, and budgets in the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge is going to cover your onboarding costs. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www7 slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. What's going on? Unstoppables. We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this show does need your support. So support our sponsors, use our affiliate links and share this thing with everybody, you know, who is aspiring to be great in the industry. And if you think that our industry needs change and then if we can drastically improve our industry, then again, share this show with anybody, you know. In the industry. So today we're talking to Benjamin Goldberg, and Benjamin Goldberg is uh, the co owner of Strategic Hospitality. He co owns it with his brother, Max Goldberg, and it's a Nashville based hospitality company that is shaping the city's dining landscape by continuously introducing innovative, one of a kind concepts. Their properties include Paradise Park Resort, the Patterson House, Merchant's Restaurants, the Catbird Seat, Pinewood, the bandbox, Bastion, Henrietta Red, Downtown Sporting Club, and Locust. Man, they are just crushing it. Uh, Strategic Hospitality also provides consulting and management services to other hospitality groups, and they were founded in 2006. And ever since 2006, they have been just growing and doing great things, and uh, lots of great stuff came out of today's conversation, just about, uh, collaborating and looking to other people in your community who are in the restaurant industry, not as competition, but as collaborators and just uh, colleagues, really. And also, I I hope you're inspired by today's story because Ben had zero experience when he was getting started and just goes to show that if, if you just start and you continuously grow, you could accomplish amazing things. And Ben is definitely one of those success stories. So with no further ado, here he is. Benjamin Goldberg. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder and co owner of Strategic Hospitality, Benjamin Goldberg. Ben, are you feeling unstoppable today?
1: Always unstoppable. Yes,
0: man. That is what we like to hear. So, a special thank you to Brandon Still and Sean Lyon uh, for helping me get on your radar while I'm in town here in Nashville. I wouldn't be able to do it without my network. Thank you guys very much. And uh, I cannot wait to capture your story, what you've done since 2003 in Nashville has been quite the story, uh, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got
1: for us? Oh man. So, uh, I think that, um, a quote that my brother and I talk about a lot is, uh, the Maya Angelou quote that, you know, people may not always remember what you yes. did or what you uh, said, but they'll always remember how you make them feel. And I think that in this industry that we're in, it's something that we always sort of remind ourselves of and really want to make sure that people feel feel the love. In when you any say that way.
0: when you say that and and do you have the consumer at the end of that receiving that or is it the the, the team member? Which one's closer to you in your heart would you say?
1: Oh I think it's everyone we come in yeah, contact yeah. with. I think that one of the things we want to make sure of is that everyone that touches and interacts with the restaurant uh, or or the company in general feels that way. And we we really do try that, you know, I think that we get all sorts of people through the doors, whether they're guests or whether they're vendors or purveyors or employees or any of those sorts of uh, things. And I think really trying to make sure that you know we treat them as well as we possibly can uh, is, is important to us.
0: Great way to get this thing started. So in my research on you, to figure out how you got to where you are today, I did see that you were a graduate of, was it Miami? University, University of Miami. University, yep. University of Miami, 03 uh, Early 2000s is when you graduated? 02. 02? Uh, What was going on between, I mean, you must have been very intentional about getting into this industry because only one year had elapsed since graduating and starting your first business. So what was going on? Take us to that point. When did you know this was going to be your career?
1: I mean, after I opened my first place that I think this would be my career. That's for sure. I I think that um, I went, grew up in Nashville uh, with a school in Miami, obviously. Got to experience bars and restaurants differently than I ever had growing up in Nashville, um, and sort of would keep coming back to Nashville and hanging out with my friends. And we would be sitting in people's living rooms and talking about where we were going to go and what we wanted to do. And there would be like heavy debates about it. And we were like, buddy of mine uh, at the time, we're like, well, we're debating where we're going to go, but they're all almost identical. They all have brick walls. They all have wood bars. They all have neon beer signs. And he was at school in Boston. I was in school in Miami. We're like, this is just a little bit different, uh, than what we have in those bigger cities. And so from that point on really my senior year of college, um, started thinking about the idea of coming home and opening a place up.
0: Okay. And it, even to, right, to this point in the interview, I can't help but think of a, a recent interview I did, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves with Chris Dimmick out of Dayton, Ohio, who is saying, like, don't just because you're in a smaller market where in 2003, Nashville isn't what it was today, right? Don't be afraid to do these these crazy things that bigger markets are doing because people want that stuff because they can see it happening other places with their mobile device do crazy things in small markets and don't be afraid to stand out. Don't, don't think the consumer won't be ready for it. Is that similar to what was going through your mind when you you brought what was happening in Boston and Miami to Nashville? Like I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what was going through your mind?
1: I I think very selfish in the beginning. And that's all of the projects is we want to create places where we want to go. Okay. And um, you know, that was one of those things is we felt like at the time there was a market for um, maybe something a little bit different than was here. And we would definitely go experience that, Mm -hmm. and so that was really what pushed us pushed us forward. And at the time, my brother and I weren't even working together. Yeah, Um, but that was really what the sort of the spirit of that process was was like, hey, it exists elsewhere, cool. We know that it could theoretically work. Also, we would be the first people through the door as guests if it wasn't our spot. Yeah, Uh, and so let's let's just roll the dice and see what happens.
0: And I think what's interesting about this, I mean, how old were you when you opened your first restaurant? Twenty three. You were your target market. Right? Exactly right. You know? And I think that's really interesting. When you open young, you are the target market. Like the, the cons- at, if you're, especially if you're opening a bar, the first restaurant you opened was called Bar 23. Uh, was it because of your, your age? No, it's funny. It's, uh, <laughs> it, I,
1: people ask, that's the number one question I get. But ironically, it was on the corner of 12th and 11th. Which should never happen in any city, and we were like, "Well, that's cool." And the building was 1923, 23 23 foot ceilings, the whole nine. But the fact that it was on 12th and 11th, and we just added the numbers, made it it funny for us. Okay, that is funny. And
0: you were 23, (laughs) and we were 23 at the time. Yeah. Um. So like, you're you're from Nashville. You're 23. You're of the age where you're spending most of your time in bars for most people around that age, right? Uh. You did you? I'm assuming you had roots too, a network of people, friends that would want to come support your business. Was that playing into it? Do you think?
1: Without a doubt. I think that, you know, obviously we're petrified about going through the process of even if anyone would show up to this place, we knew our friends would show up, but obviously we also knew that our friends were not going to keep us in business. Um, but yeah, no doubt there is this underlying element of, it wasn't only showing up to work. I got to hang out with friends. I got to work with people about the same age. We all looked at things in very similar manners. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, without a doubt, um it was a fun and interesting bizarro time to be the same age as everyone coming in the bar everyone working in the bar it was just a blast
0: yeah we're talking about a lot of the pros that come with being in the target market but it's also probably a lot of cons challenges that come with being that young being the same age as the people you're serving the people the people you're working with right I, I kind of maybe we'll save that for later but i've never gotten in this quick in this soon of the interview like within six minutes of you know introducing you to talking about opening your first restaurant, there's usually this come up story of uh, going to work for different restaurateurs, learning, getting mentored, developing, you know, sharpening your saw and just getting better over time to build up that confidence to open. But I guess where I'm going with this, is there anything worth discussing prior to opening that you think sets you up for success? Mentors, people who influenced you that helped you become successful.
1: Without a doubt. I mean, look, I think that it's very easy to breeze past the fact that there was more than a year between graduating college when I knew what I really wanted to do and actually opening the doors, that was one of the most difficult years that I've had. We'd had to raise money to do this. I wasn't, this wasn't like, oh, I have this amount of money to go open this place.
0: I kind of, I'm not going to lie. I kind of assume that's probably what happened. Yeah, no, like it was at it the was, age of 23. How do you pull this off?
1: Um, I'm going to sort of give you the sense. So we um, obviously had people that we hoped would invest in our project. And so we wrote down on a dry erase board, these names. Um, and the first person we sat down with said that they would give us a little bit of money. Wow. And we were like, this is all, this is going to be so easy. (laughs) Uh, and so we called the rest of the list that we had and not one other person said yes.
0: So what in, in in your mind, what was the number you thought you needed to, to be able to open $350,000? How much do you get from
1: the first? Is it, are you willing to talk about that? We got, um, $50,000.
0: Okay. So you still had a ways to go. Yes. Um, so you got it.
1: We got the 50 and then we went zero for the next, whatever that was. But what we realized was we were out of names. Okay. And so we had to call everyone back and say, okay, we know you, you're not interested, give us six names. We believe in six free separation of people that, that might be interested to sit down with us. And eventually we built out a database of over 340 something names. And out of that 340, we got more than seven people. Wow. Right? And so it took a year plus to raise the money. And of of that ebbs and flows where you went months and months and months and months never thinking you would actually be able to raise the money successfully, we had to do weird stuff where, um, look, we were two 23-year-old kids trying to open a restaurant and bar in Nashville, Tennessee that was just different. Some people were really interested in at least learning about it. Some people had zero interest in learning about it, but what we really struggled with was people taking us seriously enough to get to the actual finish line of writing a check. So they would take a meeting. Nashville's a nice city, and we would it, it would be like interesting. We'd have great conversation. We'd follow up, and it would be a little mm-hmm. bit of radio silence. And so we would um, send them a, a, a gift. We, we, would, we would make guacamole for them. <laughs> And we would deliver to their office guacamole and chips with the thought process that no one's going to get a gift and not at least reply with a thank you. And that was our in. Okay, you got the guac. Awesome. Are you still interested in investing in the bar?
0: See, like one of the things that's going through my mind is, uh, especially when you're trying to court somebody and develop a relationship with somebody, well, a lot of the time, all it takes is just consistency and familiarity. If you keep on showing up, you're going to become familiar with you. Like over time, if you keep showing up, if, if you... Try to stay familiar. Like it's eventually opportunities are going to happen. Don't ever stop at the first no. Is what I'm trying to say. What are your thoughts on that?
1: 100 percent correct. Yeah. And I also think that the fact we stuck with it for so long allowed people that were on the fence to circle back to us and be like, "Man, you guys are committed. I believe in you. I don't mm. know if I believe in the bar, but I believe in you." I'm so happy you're, you're not going to let us down. Yeah. And that was how we closed the deal. Right. It was those people that were on the fence that saw us going after it. Every day, we treated it like a job. We took over the kitchen in this terrible apartment that I had. We bought $20 dry erase boards, the big four by eight sheets from Home Depot. We drilled them into my wall and that, that entire kitchen was full of names and we would check them off. What was your major in, in um, Miami? So dumb. Entrepreneurship. Okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> unhirable, <laughs>
0: but at the same time, it taught you a lot about resilience, I'm sure. And just starting
1: right. And just it, did. It, it gave me a really great baseline, yeah. you know, and I think that I was really lucky on that.
0: How did that serve you? the most? Do you think that background, that, that influence during this time studying entrepreneurism?
1: It was really a major of a lot of minors. And so I think that I got exposed to enough of the little details of business, um, that I look back on it and I felt like maybe it was more full. The bucket was fuller than it was, but I at least got exposed to a lot of different things and that was very helpful. When I find, when we finally got to open the bar, what I re- realized very, very quickly was, um, in no way, shape, or form that I have any idea what I was doing.
0: Yeah, and you said uh, people, and I love that you say this because I I, I echo it all the time. People don't invest in restaurants; they invest in people. And I was actually going to say that, but you, on paper, at this time of your life—in no offense—I think most people would say not a good investment, right? Because your track record wasn't there. You had you there was no proof of you and what you could do. Um, so the big things that I'm pulling from your story that that made people. to to overcome that uh, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that are listening to this who want to open a restaurant. They maybe never even worked in a restaurant before, but they still have the dream. You staying familiar is what you did. Uh, Six degrees of of six degrees of separation is what you did. You, you casted a wider net, right? You, you went to people who have a reputation and you had them be the common denominator, right? What else did you do?
1: Uh, I think at the end of the day, we were overly transparent and overly honest, Mm. right? And I think that people can, see that, especially in the restaurant and bar business where people are maybe not accustomed to dealing with that as often, but we were overly transparent. We couldn't hide the fact we were two 23 year old kids without much experience.
0: Yeah. Give me an example of the level of transparency and honesty that you led with.
1: I think that you know you get we got asked a lot of questions that we didn't always know the answer to. And we were honest with that. Like, are you gonna be able to sign this lease? we think we'll be able to sign the lease in this location. We truly believe that. We're not going to sit you, look you dead in the eyes and say, this is all, this lease is signed or we're signing it tomorrow. But if we, we believe that if we're able to raise this money on this timeline, that this building will still be available for us to lease. And just those little decisions where some people might say, oh yeah, we'll be able to sign the lease. The over-explanation of that to make sure people understood that this isn't just some half-baked thing, but this is actually us sitting down and being like, Look, we're going to live through the trials and tribulations as together. We think we can get there. Um, I think all of those little things to fully explain is a great example of, of where you take the time to make sure people are comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, I think there's something to be said about vulnerability and that as a tool to gain trust. It's like a dog rolling over on his back. You're going to scratch that little sucker. You know? like you're going to get down there and give him some love to that little guy. And is there something that's like welcoming about vulnerability? Like when you're, when you're just exposed, I think it's much easier to gain trust.
1: Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and people can tell, right? I mean, if we went into these rooms and we were two 23 year old kids that tried to convince people we knew exactly what we were doing in every single question that was, they they would know we weren't being truthful, right? Like there's, there's an element of like, what are we hiding anyway? And it's the way we want to operate. And so we were just overly, you know, overly vulnerable.
0: So you went to all these people that said no. You asked them to re- recommend six people each. You end up with something up upwards of 700 and what? 72 we had or something. 340 300,
1: something names on this list.
0: 342 names. You got seven total yeses. Is that what it was? Yeah, like
1: seven or eight, yep. And that's how many yeses you needed to get that 350. That's right.
0: So you get the money. Now you're opening your first restaurant. Is there anything that we have not brought to the story that's worth bringing to the story before we get into how you executed it?
1: The only, if, if we're going from raise money to open, I, I think that I would be remiss not to mention the fact that you're working for four or five, six months every day in the trenches, building a restaurant out. And every single one of those days, there are decisions that are being made. And I think that what we learned so early on, I actually tell people this all the time. There are people I worked with on that project that if those were not the people working, this place would never have been built, right? Like we, we really struggled to get this thing put to the finish line. And we were so lucky that we worked with such talented people to get us there. What was your biggest struggle? Uh, I mean, I think that some of the biggest struggles was just the ins and outs of how to actually do things. Right? So, um, in Davidson County in Nashville, there's a beer board, right? And you got to go get your beer license. We had never done that before. We also didn't have a bunch of money to throw at lawyers to go do it for us. Mm -hmm. So like we figured it out. And I'll never forget, we show up to our first beer board meeting and I I get a sheet of paper. It's like, it's 12 sheets of paper stapled and I'm looking for like what's going on. I have not a clue. And I'll never forget Martin from debt distributing. One of the beer distributors in town walks over, puts his arm around me and goes, just stand next to me. We'll walk through this together. Nice. And like just those little things as you accumulate them actually allow you to open a place, right? Contractors, inspectors that are willing to have conversations with you, um, power companies, he took a power, um, all of those people that are sort of cheering you on and helping you along the way. That's a whole army of people getting you to that point.
0: So what were you doing to recruit these people? Or was it just because of your vulnerability, because of your honesty, because you were just hustling? Do you think that there was just, you were like striking a, a soft spot in the hearts of people that, that wanted to see you become successful? Like what was going on there?
1: I don't know if I did anything other than I could, I would venture to guess looking back, uh, both my partner and I probably looked petrified in every one of these decisions and they wanted to feel protective <laughs> of us. Like we probably walked into these situations just so far over our skis that it was trying to wrap our head around some of these conversations. They just felt bad for us.
0: So you open, and I, I, I mean, there's so much to cover because how many total restaurants have you opened to
1: date? Oh man, that's a pop quiz. I don't know. <laughs> really? No, I, um, I have a very, very short term memory on some I of that stuff. That. Um, and, you know, I think that's both good and bad.
0: Right. So um, take us through, like, what what was this? I mean, when? how long was
1: Bar 23 open? So we, uh, it's funny, we signed a five-year lease. And when we signed it, I vividly remember being like, five years. <laughs> it's eternity. No way we're here <laughs> for five years. And then our lease was up and we had to leave. So uh, um, we were there for five years.
0: And uh, was it the lease being up that basically had you... Just made you move on to something new, or is it was it not worth retaking this brand and putting it someplace else?
1: Uh, several different things went into that. Um, so Bar Twenty Three was uh, when we opened it was in the Gulch in Nashville, which um, we were like the only business operating down <laughs> there. They were there, the streets weren't paved; it was gravel roads. They were in the process of putting all the utilities underground, um, and so our street was closed a lot of times. You walked down you you walked down a sidewalk that wasn't there um this building has been vacant forever there's really not much happening so like there really wasn't a reason not to lease us a building um but 5 years later that entire neighborhood changed dramatically and so some of the metrics just didn't make sense for us to continue we also opened up between those 5 years a live music venue called City Hall um uh, which was an absolute blast um and a, a couple years into that we had the opportunity to to sell our lease Uh, and get out of that and so we got out of that and the timing sort of lined up really nicely to close both of those together and just sort of okay okay we did have opportunities to move it we did have opportunities to sell it Uh, but at the end of the day i think what austin and i decided was like that brand that bar 23 in city hall was something so special to us that we couldn't think of letting someone else run it or just risk moving it so let's kind of dial back
0: and in this five years you had this lease for five years reflecting back at that time from opening the doors to closing the doors. How did you grow? How did you transform as a restaurant owner, bar owner?
1: Um, I think that what we realized on day one was we had no idea what we were doing. And, you know, not only did we not know what we were doing, we didn't have any money to hire a bunch of people that did know what they were doing. So we had to put our head down and just do the work ourselves, uh, to figure it out. And I think that through that, it was the greatest master's degree of this industry I've ever experienced in my entire life. You know, things that you think you sort of know, but then you realize, Oh man, I don't really know any of this <laughs> stuff. And it it turns into what, you know, most people can probably do in an eight hour day. You're doing in a 16 hour day. And that's what I tell people all the time. Austin and I, like we, we just, we weren't smart. We just outworked yeah. the problem, which is
0: one of the benefits of starting at the age of 23 is you have this like endless, like, Just pool of energy that like you can just go, go, go. And also if you if you fall flat on your face at the age of twenty-three, you can still move in with your parents. You know, that's I mean, that
1: was our thought, right? Like okay, we're twenty-three. What's the worst that happens? Yeah. Right? Like, but if you're forty-five, there's a lot of worse that can happen. Mm -hmm. Twenty-three, we're like, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. And we just got super, super lucky.
0: Yeah. Uh, so Knowing what you know now and reflecting back at that first five years, the things that you did when you thought you were doing the right thing, but now you know that it probably wasn't the right decision. What advice do you have for the earlier version of yourself? What were the things that you would have corrected knowing what you know now in that five-year period with with your first restaurant?
1: I think that um, I look back at those five years with like the greatest fondness because I know that, how proud I am of how much I learned during that time, um, for all of the, the rights and wrongs and goods and bads. It's really hard to sit back and be like, man, you did not give every ounce of your soul to this thing to make it work. Um, I will say that, you know, going along with that every day I was living and breathing the trials and tribulations and just the amount of pressure. um, I wish that I, I didn't Take some things as seriously as um, as I did back then right you have one slow Tuesday and you're like we're going down we're going down guys <laughs> you know and it was definitely just a very high pressure situation I'll, I'll also say that um, probably stuck to my guns too long on certain things we were very adamant that when we when we posted hours we were open for those hours and those hours were 5 a, 5 p.m to 3 a.m Every day,
0: five a.m. To, 3- five, 5 to
1: three. Sorry, five p.m. to three a.m. Oh, I might have heard you wrong. Yeah, five p.m. to three a.m. <laughs> seven days a week, and there were days when we would be there at five. You know, p.m. open, unlock the doors. Um, we were there probably at ten a.m. and then unlocked, like, unlocked doors at five p.m. Uh, open till three a.m. And I'm not joking when I tell you we would close out with zero dollars of sales. So,
0: we're, what are you what, what are you getting at when you share this with us? What's the point you're trying to make?
1: I think that. That's the mistake I had. Is I wish I, I sort of recognized that some of those shortcomings. Were like you don't have to be open every single hour that you possibly can serve. I think you, this is a very to,
0: common mistake early yeah. on for people. Why do you think that that's the mentality?
1: For me, it was if we're going to commit to being open, we're going to commit to being open. Right? I had a lot of baggage of people like you're not even ever open this place. This idea is so stupid. No one's ever going to want to show up. All of these things, and then we make a commitment to ourselves and the public that we are open during these times
0: it's integrity is what comes and i just to, couldn't
1: yeah. wrap my brain around not fulfilling that yeah but we could have unwound that differently than we did with a lot less stress and a lot less burden on a lot of people so
0: knowing what you know now take a day off like and don't you don't have to be open every day or adjust your hours to be maybe cut back a little bit during tuesday and wednesday instead of doing this crazy hour i mean i don't want to put words into your mouth but i think that's where
1: you're going with this. Yeah. What else? Uh, what else did we what, learn from that mistake, from that lesson right
0: there? Anything else worth unpackaging?
1: Um, no, I mean, I think that the public was speaking to us in a lot of ways, yeah. right? Like a Monday night in a bar in the middle of nowhere in Nashville, you can probably allow the staff to breathe the building to breathe. You could probably have done things a little bit differently. And I, 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 in retrospect, I wish that I had on the, on the other side, it's really hard for me to pick apart those mistakes because I, I genuinely, I know the intent was there of like positive for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, and also looking back on the five years, like it was an absolute blast, but really some of those lessons there, I I could have learned faster.
0: And was bar 23, like a hit. Would you call it a hit? Was it super profitable or where were you as far
1: as? Yeah, we got lucky. I mean, we got really lucky. Um, I think that, um, it hit the right time in the right place in the right city. And we were the demographic.
0: What was right about the place and time?
1: What we recognized really quickly was that our demographic went out differently than I think previous uh, older folks were doing at the time. And so um, we recognized that there were really cool people doing really cool things. When you
0: say went out, you mean like actually going out?
1: Going out to eat, to drink, coffee shops. you know? And what we had was a really, really wonderful creative community of people that were living in Nashville that were looking to be around other really interesting, quirky, creative people. And we were happened to be one of the places where they would go, mm-hmm. and that to me was just it was sheer luck and then we really leaned into it
0: mm-hmm. and I think location too one of the things i've noticed it's a it's definitely a pattern I picked up in all my interviews is being right on the edge and a lot of times I think maybe not so much now, but maybe going back twenty years, people thought that they had to be in it, and you know location location, location, but sometimes if you can have a, you know, your crystal ball and you can get on the edge. And especially in a momentum city where things are growing fast, that edge is going to be the new center, you know? And, and especially if your target market is young people, because usually young people can't afford to go to the center. So they're on the outskirts. They're in the the lower income parts of town and you have to be, a, there has to be a place for those people. Was that going through your mind too?
1: We could never afford it to, op- to open a place in, in the heart of where it was. Like we, we were forced into looking in different spaces we trust me we tried and uh i think that there's no doubt that um being on the out the outside or the edge or in quirkier locations it's kind of to be honest if you look through what we've done they're all that way now i'll tell you that people are like man you were a genius for going in the gulch and I'm like, ah, you know, I, yeah. I think that 20, you know, 15 <laughs> years later. Yeah. I look really, really smart. And then what I tell him is like, that's the only place that would lease me a building. Yeah. Right. Like that was it. I couldn't go. We couldn't go anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, even downtown, like everyone, when I opened uh, paradise park, they were like, you're on the wrong side of lower Broadway. And I'm like, oh man, like, did I really mess this up? And then in the back of my mind, I'm like, wait, if I can't get across a street, I don't deserve to be in business. Uh, and so like even then, which is now the craziest strip probably arguably in the entire country of people going out. Even when that opened in whatever year that was early two thousands, they were like wrong location, terrible place, wrong side of the street. No one's going to go there. Uh, and so I think what you're saying just to echo that is 100% right. Like you don't have to be what everyone thinks is the best location in the world you just have to, in my opinion, we just try and commit to it and deliver a product that's good enough to make people go just a little bit out of their way.
0: Yeah. Um, so is there anything else that's worth bringing to the conversation uh, before we start talking about your creation of Strategic Hospitality? Um, you said that you opened in 2005, uh, you had City Hall uh, live music venue. Uh, when did you know you were ready to open a second location? Were you ready in hindsight?
1: No, definitely not. That was for fun. <laughs> that was for fun. We had a lot of people that... Um, that warehouse was vacant for years and years and years and years next to bar 23. Um, and there were a lot of people that would come into bar 23 and say, man, that would be an amazing music venue. And you know, if you open a music venue, they're like, we might come and play. And we're like, let's do it. Okay. Let's see what we can do. <laughs> you know? And, uh, at the end of the day that we just sort of fell into that.
0: Yeah. Get into the wheel a little bit. That's something we haven't had a chance to do. Um, you had different partners at this time because it wasn't until 2006 that your brother came into the picture, right?
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I beg, I had to beg my brother to come back. Um, I had a, a, a business partner in Austin who owns restaurants in, in town now. Um, and we knew each other through high school. We, he went to Boston. I went to Miami. We sort of talked about what we both wanted to do. They were both very similar ideas. Yeah. And we were like, well, wait, we can't both do this. And we really like each other. Let's, let's partner and do the same thing together. Um, and, and we did bar 23 and city hall together.
0: And how did you compliment each other?
1: Oh man, he is amazing human. He is so good at what he does. He's very, very, very detail oriented. He works his absolute tail off. He's amazing with people. Um, I think I think the absolute world of him. And I think that um, there is not one chance in the world if I had ever done this by myself, it would have ever worked. Yeah, it just there's just no way.
0: So you just listed all of his attributes, attention to detail, um, social, emotional intelligence. It sounds like business. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm making things up. But what were your lanes? If his lanes were the the, the detail, was he more operations, accounting, that sort of thing? What, what were you doing?
1: We did all every together. we both did everything. And I think we did that because neither one of us was completely confident in our <laughs> ability to do any one thing. But I, I think that um, there is no doubt that that. He one hundred percent made that tick, okay
0: um, and with city hall, any new lessons that came from this experience that were new to you?
1: It is so hard to have a part time restaurant bar music venue, or anything right We were booking shows um, some months we would have three shows, some months we 'd have twenty shows, and those three months those months with three shows in it we were begging people to come play so we could pay rent. Right. So it it really, for me, that was sort of a half, half in half out situation and it was really hard. And so I think that for me, one of the lessons there is like, we're just all in.
0: Okay. Um, so I think you started that with saying that it's hard to be half in. So were you, were you half in at first? And then you realized you had to go whole in. I mean, I guess I don't, I didn't pick up the lesson.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. The the lesson there was just how hard the business is unless you're, you're, um, able to be open as much as you need to be open.
0: So did, was it like, did you start not being that open often or did, did you in- gradually increase your, we just hours?
1: underestimated some of the, like the amount of events we thought we could do the expense that it would take to run the place, um, overestimated the number of bands that we would have come play the show. And so I think we just had a maybe inflated sense of what the possibilities and the opportunities were. Um, and it just, it it was, it was tough going for, for a few months.
0: Okay. Um, so you close bar 23, five years after opening in 2007, 2008 ish, uh, city hall is not around anymore. Is it? It is not. No. It is not. When did that close?
1: close at the same time as bar 23 okay that's right you said that
0: i think now is a good time to take our first break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant unstoppable members get three months. Absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S. Dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. All right, now we're back, and you had opened your first, rest, your first two restaurants. Um, what's going on around 2006 that you're like, we need to, to change some stuff around here? We need, like, what was, where were you in 2006? What was your thought process?
1: 2006, I think, is when I started thinking about the fact that I had the opportunity to do this for a living. Okay. Right, before, when it was Bar 23 and City Hall, those were just sort of like things we wanted to do without much long-term thinking about career and I think at that point I was thinking, well, Nashville's growing. I see I have a, I feel like I have a sense of the wave that's coming. And do I want to lean into the business or or lean out of the business? Because at that time, those were the decisions for, for me personally, was either I'm gonna go in the open another place and go into this. Or I'm going to say I had an absolute blast for five years of my life and I'm going to go do something else completely.
0: So what was it that pushed you over the edge to do this for the rest of your life? What was it that sucked you in?
1: I absolutely love the industry. I love the app, the business. I love getting to know people. I love meeting people. I love making people happy. I love taking care of people. I absolutely loved using the creative side of my brain and the sort of nerdy accounting side of my brain. I love the industry completely. I can't imagine doing something else. And so when it came down to it, I was like, who am i kidding like let's let's lean into this i got it
0: so this is going to be hard for you but you have such a breadth of projects you've done right you you even said that you can't remember how many total concepts you you've opened up to this day is it possible for you to like zoom up to 30,000 feet and just cruise and just like mention like what you did in order and I'll give you a cheat sheet if you need, if you want to pass it back to you. Yeah, no, I can't. In in
1: order might be difficult, but I know, I know the project. So we did bar 23 city hall, paradise park. Ariel was on the roof of paradise park, which just sort of came from hanging out with our business partners up there, which was a blast. Um,
0: and when you go through, let me know if they're still open to this day.
1: Okay. Um, then we did, I guess the Patterson house in midtown, which is still open. um, Catbird Seat opened up um, above the Patterson House we did Merchants we we actually bought Merchants the only restaurant we bought they were going to close and we had the opportunity to purchase that restaurant um, then we did Pinewood Social um, we opened a place called the Bandbox where the sounds play we opened up LaSalle um, we opened up Bastion, um, Henrietta Red um, and then we did downtown Sporting club, and then locust. okay, I think my
0: my my timeline is lined up with you now. Thank you can I have that back actually yeah, of course so um so th- th- the reason why I had to do that is because literally we, we there's no way we're going to be able to go in deep to every one of those openings, right? Good. But refl- yeah, but reflecting back, um, and looking, thinking about the man you are, the man you've transformed into over time, where were your most trans transitional or transformative experiences? Like what were the restaurants that were the most challenging and why were they the most challenging? Reflecting back at that.
1: Yeah. So obviously the first thing that we did was the mo- like one of the most challenging, right? We had never done that. We had no idea what to expect. We didn't understand the cadence of how to open a restaurant. So that uptick of knowledge was massive. Um, I think paradise park, uh, in 2007 was probably the one where I felt the most exposed, um, because I had, uh, personal guarantees on opening that place. Um, and you know, those weighed differently (laughs) in a lot of ways. Um, and so, and that was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so that was the first restaurant thing that I had done. Bar 23 started as a restaurant, um, during the early parts of the evening, it was like a lighter 8, 10, 12 menu uh, item menu um, with a very small kitchen. Paradise Park was a 24-7 diner in the heart of Lower Broadway. Um, and then there was a bar. And so I, that was a huge uptick for me, learning. I'll never forget those moments of first night we opened was was March 16th. I'll never forget that because it was the night of J- uh, Justin Timberlake's concert um and we were unlocking the doors which was so dumb for the first time i'm standing in the kitchen cooking at 2:30 in the morning and i just see tickets just start printing oh man and by yourself I, well no there's a bunch okay. of us there but like we don't know what we're doing it's the yeah. first night yeah. we've done like a mediocre friends and families and i just remember seeing them come off and you know start we're starting really to cook and we cooked for about 2 hours straight and i look at the clock it's 4:30 in the morning and I'm like, oh man, we're supposed to go to breakfast in 30 minutes. Oh and We have my like gosh. 40 tickets hanging still. Oh my goodness. What are we going to do? And so I just remember, like, that's a moment where I was like, I got to get better at this real quickly. Wait,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't work in kitchens before
1: this. This no. was your first. Yeah. So. I mean, I worked, I learned along as everyone else did. Yeah. But, um yeah, that was an intense uh, learning up curve.
0: There. I mean, that's like drinking from a fire
1: hose. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. S-
0: so, sorry, go ahead. No, nope, let's go. So I was going to say, um, you said that it was your first personal guarantee. Yep. What do you mean by that?
1: You know, in the first bar, we were able to raise all the money from investors. And in that project, we did not. Um, I did not. That was just me. And so I had to personally guarantee some of the money and make sure that this thing worked. Okay, so you're putting your own skin in yeah, the game. Yeah, putting my own skin in the game. Okay. Um, and, you know, that was, a, that was a decision that I felt obviously very nervous about, but obviously felt very comfortable and confident in that. Um, and, but the pressure's on, right? I mean, not only for the investors that did participate, but also for myself.
0: Okay. I mean, ironically, I think that if I was in that situation where it was my own money, I feel like there's less pressure because I'm only screwing myself over if I don't succeed. Oh, we right? still had investors money. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. just me. Trust me. It,
1: it, it just adds a of complexity of, of thought process there.
0: So what was new for you in this experience that had, I mean, you said it was your first like actual restaurant, but as far as, Uh, business goes, uh, learning the game of business. Where were you? Have you, how do you evolved up to this point? Were you doing anything different? Were you better with numbers? Were you a a, a better version of yourself than you were five years prior?
1: A better version of myself. I hope so. I guess that's, you know, a question, but I think I knew the cadence of the business much better than I did previously. Right. So I understood, okay, we're going to engage an architect. We're going to engage the MP and E engineers. We're going to engage the structural engineers. Here's the contractor that I've comfort, you know, comfort using. Here's how this is going to go for the beer board and liquor license, the inspections, and all these things. Here's how we're going to ramp up. So I understood the cadence of the restaurant. You've gone through it twice at this point. This it, is your third time, exactly right. Yeah.
0: Uh, what, else, what were some of the other like? Or actually, I know in my research that you end up closing um, Paradise Park. And how long ago was? How long were you guys open?
1: Uh, we were open like eleven years. 11
0: years. You guys got some kickback for closing that. Did you not sure? did. How do you handle that? Like when, what's the point of closing? If you're doing well, were you doing super well? Like what was the point of closing?
1: Um, the point of closing was the building was going to sell. Okay. And you know, we were going to close one way or the other. Um, and we were at some point, maybe not right then and there. Um, but the building was going to sell. They were going to put other concepts in the building that we couldn't afford to be. Um, and so what we were able to do was go to some real estate partners that own buildings and say, Hey, this building is going to sell. Are you interested in buying the building? Uh, and they were interested in buying the building, which was awesome. But part of that was we needed to take over the entire building as a tenant. And so, but you can't do a, I don't think you can do a four story. Yeah. paradise park so uh we just sort of morphed it from there
0: it's almost like as nashville like in my the image i have in my mind is this droplet of water like landing in a puddle and there's the this, this shockwave a ripple effect of like nashville growing from the inside out and like you are almost catching the wave of that first ripple as the city's going outwards you're like staying on the edge you're being forced out in a way and correct me if I'm wrong, but like as the city's the city's scaling, getting more expensive, you're like, well, screw that. Let's just go. Let's just keep moving to the edge of town. Is that a lot a of stretch? It,
1: yeah. No, it's not a stretch. I think that um, that would be the negative side, right? Like the city's growing so quickly, we don't, we can't go where we want to go. Like sometimes there is a negative there, but but I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> like the fact the city is exploding as I entered into the hospitality business is what has allowed me to continue to grow professionally. Mm -hmm. This isn't because I am better or smarter or do things that much different. This is because I was right time, right place and was able to sort of recognize the fact pretty early on in this city that there were a lot of younger people in the city doing really amazing stuff, right? So you have people making jeans or boots or leather goods, and that's all they're doing because they're, they're honing their entire world around making these crafts that are just better than what you can go get elsewhere. And so, this community of people are really what propelled the hospitality scene in Nashville forward. Um, and we were just, you know, right time, right place. So that's the, the pro. The con is what you're referencing, which is as the city's been exploding, things are getting exponentially more expensive to do. Mm. And so um, I think all of that is true. And that's the delicate balance I think we find ourselves in.
0: I mean, I, there's so many things we can discuss right now. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to choose a direction cause you just have such a breadth of experience and you've done so much in such a short period of time. Uh, I, we also should probably mention at this point, your, your brother's coming on scene. Yeah. Right? Uh, was your original partner sticking around? Did you guys have like a falling out?
1: No, we're dear friends. Okay. Uh, we had a, he was working on uh paradise park with me at the time. And when it came down to it, he had other things he was doing also. Yeah. And, um, it just, I kept going this way and he went the other way. Um, but we're dear friends. There was zero falling out. I think the absolute, like I said, I think the absolute world of him, um, different visions, not even, he just did different things outside of the restaurant business for a while.
0: Okay. Got you. Um, so what was the, what was going through your mind? Why did you think you needed your brother?
1: Well, for a few reasons. One is this was not like call my brother up and Hey, Max, move back to Nashville. Like, I begged Max to move back to Nashville over the course of like seven or eight months. Why, um, Max? A couple of reasons. One is I knew I could not do this by myself. Austin taught me um, so much about this industry. Um, and like I said, I would not have been, nothing that we did would have been successful without him. Mm-hmm. And so I went into Paradise Park by myself, but also in the back of my mind, knowing I need, someone else to do this with me and I was begging Max for months to move back who was living in New York at the time. Max is one of the absolute best people I've ever met um at getting to know people and yeah. engaging people yeah. and and really um creating moments with people that that they remember and how they feel and all the things that we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. He's the best I've ever met at that stuff. And I knew for a fact not only do I trust him with my life, he's my brother. Mm-hmm. But man, he is just amazing to be around.
0: So a lot of people say never go into business with family. Clearly you disagree with that. Why do you disagree with that?
1: (laughs) I mean, uh, I think that you can hear stories that are really good and really bad. I think people tend to focus sometimes on the bad. I will tell you our parents were petrified when we did this, right? Like because they they hear the horror stories of what could happen. There's also success stories of what happens when you work as a family business, um, but yeah, there's a dynamic and a for both good and bad sometimes that comes with working with your brother. We spend an inordinate amount of time together.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to lean in the direction that you went. That if you're opening a business, you got to have a level of trust there. And whenever I feel like people say like, "Don't ever go into family or business with family; it's a disaster," like maybe it's more an issue with that family than it is with the actual idea of going into business with the family because I can't think me personally of somebody, people who I want to be around me than my family. Like, how, who do you trust more than your family? You know what I'm saying? Like, and how important is trust in, in a business relationship?
1: I, I agree completely. And that's yeah. re- that was really the spirit of this. Not only did I think that he would be ridiculously talented in the industry, which he is, it, it, I, I trust him wholeheartedly. And I know for a fact that no matter whether we agree or disagree, on the same topic, the baseline is we always want the best, like for the business, for the people, for ourselves, for everything. And that to me is, is not always there. If you have two partners that may not be seeing eye to eye, one may be wanting to get out. One may want to do something else. One may treat people differently than you want. I trust max completely. And, and I think that we both know at the core of it, what the end result we want to get to is. So
0: did had paradise park open before max came or after max came?
1: It had opened before, just a few months before.
0: Okay. And what was it that brought Max down from Boston?
1: Uh, he was living in New York. Sorry, New York. Um, I begged him for months and months What was he months. doing before? Uh, he was working in like finance and PR and things okay. like that in New York and having the absolute time of his life. Okay. Um, but, you know, and at that time, remember, this is not the Nashville we have today, mm-hmm. right? Like he's living in New York City and I'm saying, come back to Nashville <laughs> it was a little bit of a tougher sell than it would be today.
0: Yeah, I imagine. So what was going through my, you you formed Strategic Hospitality. Um, Was Austin going to be a part of this at any point?
1: Not Strategic, no. But that was after, Strategic was formed after Paradise really got going.
0: Okay. Uh, What was the point of forming Strategic as far as business legalities go? Like what was was the reason for this?
1: Um, I think that I knew I needed a partner and I knew that at the time it was Benjamin and Austin did this, Benjamin and Austin did that, whatever that looked like. And I I felt that there should be more than just me. I'm not, uh, I I, I sort of shy away from this sort of stuff that I'm doing right now. Um, (laughs) But I, I, so I really wanted there to be something overarching above that, um, that more people, more talented people than I am can, we can fold into to help us do things.
0: Got it. So, I mean, when you, what was your vision? Are you living your vision? Has your vision evolved at all since forming strategic back in 2006?
1: Um, You know, I I wish I could say I had some big grand vision for the company. At at that time, I didn't. I I really um, just knew that I didn't want to be the only person out there. Like, Benjamin Goldberg does this. Like, that's just uh, not really what I was looking for. What were you looking for? um, I wanted to keep doing what I did for a living, um, but also knew that at the end of the day, this takes an army and I wanted to make sure that that army was represented. So it wasn't just me.
0: Mm. Um, you said you wanted to keep doing this for a living specifically in your mind, obviously restaurant tour, but what part of this was it? the creative side of things?
1: Um, yeah, I absolutely love the creative side. I also love the business side of the business, right? At the end of the day, this is a business. And that's Mm -hmm. what I tell people. There are a lot of people in this business that it is not a business to, right? They're doing it for a lot of other reasons. This is a business. This is my livelihood. This is what I do for a living. This is how I pay my bills. This is a business. And I love the business side of it. But man, I also love the creative side.
0: Business is a very broad term, right? So get granular. Like, what is it about business? What aspects of business really
1: light you up? I love the all of the things that go into that. I love the accounting side of it. I love watching the the marketing side of things. I love the hiring and the the HR side of things. I love getting a team of people together um, and really working together to try and accomplish a mission.
0: Mm. And I think I mean I think eventually you must have kind of pivoted towards. Being in the restaurant where you're the guy that's in the kitchen at 2.30 a.m. receiving all the Justin Bieber fans to being the guy who's out of the restaurant, who's replacing himself with men and women who are probably better than you at certain things. Like, take us through that evolution of a restaurant tour, removing yourself, building those layers between you and the work so you could go out and open a bunch of restaurants.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think we struggle with that. I think it was really apparent. Um, you know, bar 23 was still open when I opened paradise park. Okay. And what I would get all the time from my friends is like, I was at your bar. Where were you?
0: Uh,
1: and I was like, Oh, I was at a different one. Right. One. <laughs> like I know you expect to see me seven days a week whenever you happen to pop in. Yeah. Uh, and so a byproduct of that was just that I couldn't always be in every single one. Was in that every, tough
0: for you? Cause I think I saw a reference in one of the articles that I read that like you, when you're, it's hard to, to give the same level of care to each concept you're opening as you have multiple concepts. When it's your first restaurant and your second restaurant, like you're there like you can touch every element of it. When you get to three and four and five, it becomes less of just you and you have to start to rely on more people. Were you worried that you were going to lose whatever mojo you had that you were injecting into that because you're a spread thinner?
1: No, I I think that to be honest, I think we're lucky. I get to work with people that are way more talented than I am every day. Right. Like I, I know that, that, um, that without the team surrounding each one of these restaurants, they would not have been successful. And so now the people that we're working with are better at what they do than I ever was. Mm. I'm just, you know, along for the ride on some of them.
0: So what was that, that, that like attracting onto yourself, these people who are better than you are? How do you remove yourself from that day to day?
1: I think you, you know, look, I think it comes down to trust both ways, right? They have to trust that, that I'm going to be there for them. And I need to trust that they're going to be there for, for me and, um, really give each other the freedoms to both succeed and fail and look past the failures and work together to make them better. How do you build that trust in the restaurant business? It's not that hard. You're in it together for a lot of hours, and a lot of times, and a lot of, you know, conversations. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, It's not like there's one thing that makes you trust or not trust someone. For the most part, I'm sure there are certain things that that could be there, but it's a lot of little decisions uh, that happen where you're like, oh man, that's that's better than what I was thinking, Mm. right? They're smarter than I am. I need to be along for what they're saying because I trust their inherent decisions.
0: It sounds like you don't have a lot of ego, which is a good thing, right? (laughs) Um, What is it about you that is able to get out of the way and to, to let people make decisions and to let people kind of take over your baby.
1: I think I struggle with it. Right. I mean, I think that there are, I think if you ask people I work with, they're like, Oh man, he struggles with giving the control up. There's no doubt about that. Um, are you better at it now? I try to be.
0: Well, what have you learned about yourself to be better at giving that up?
1: I mean, like I said, I think that, um, I've tried to allow people to make the decisions even when I think they're wrong. And then what, what I'm being proven time and time again is like, they weren't the ones that were wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> was
0: that a skill you had to learn over time?
1: You're forced to, right? So, um, back when Austin and I were 23, we, we were working seven days a week yeah. and eventually you can't work seven days a week, 24 hours a day for your entire life. Mm-hmm. So inherently all those little things are like, I'm going to take a day off Well, someone else is running that restaurant. You need to trust the decisions they're making in that moment of what those things happen. And you, you start working together and understand where people's, uh, skill sets are and what their, their mindset is and and how they interact with people.
0: Yeah. So at one point you close two restaurants, you still have one restaurant, you close bar 23 in city hall. You still have paradise park. So now you're down from, you're going from three restaurants to one restaurant. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. You must have been like, yes, I have all this free time, right? Like I get to come back a little bit more intentional, maybe be a little bit more strategic with how I'm going forward. Is that what was going on?
1: No, we, I knew that we, that 23 and city hall were on their way down when I opened paradise. So that was not the surprise. And our goal was to, to open up paradises around the Southeast. Okay. And so that was the mission. Then we were going to, I was going to unwind, uh, 23 and city hall lean into paradise park open throughout the southeast
0: okay that didn't happen it did not um when did you really he said you closed paradise in 2011 correct around that time yeah um what no happened,
1: no later than that was it later than that yeah it was like 2017
0: okay so you, I mean, you opened a bunch of other places b- before getting. So I guess there's so many moving parts going on at the same time, right? It's hard to get, like get down and focus on one thing. I, I think earlier I asked you, like, as you were moving forward, as you were opening all these concepts and restaurants, where were the transformative times for you? Where did you really grow as a restaurant tour? So let's get back on that path. Yep. Um, when was the next big evolutionary like moment in your career after Paradise Park?
1: Um, I would say that. I mean, there's so many that I can think of, but, um, the goal, one of the goals that I had, like I mentioned just now was to open up multiple paradise parks throughout the Southeast. And the reason we didn't do it is not because paradise didn't work. It's because I became obsessed with other things that I really wanted to do in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh. And my brother did as well. Right At this point, my brother and I are working together.
0: What changed inside of you to go from, Hey, Let's take this one concept and scale it to, you know what, screw that. Let's just put all of our energy into Nashville. What
1: changed? Um, I think that we got the opportunity to work with people that just were so special. And it's really, I mean, these things destroy your life when you open a restaurant, right? It is all, you are, it's all encompassing. Yeah. And we, instead of opening paradise park, we got to do a, a project called the Patterson house, which is like a little nerdy cocktail bar. And through that process that took up so much time and energy and bandwidth that, um, by doing that inherently, we sort of pushed away the expansion of paradise park for a while.
0: Okay. Um, and I, I listening to you talk, like I'm, I'm being reminded of, uh, Zingerman's. And Ari Wineswag, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with the brand? Mm-hmm. So they're based out of Ann Arbor and they're behind uh, Zingerman's Delicatessen yeah. and, and they have Zingerman's community of business, right? And there was back and forth between Paul and Ari, like, should we take Zingerman's? Should we scale it and put it in every city in America? And, the, and I think that's kind of what Paul was leaning towards. And Ari was like, you know, I, I, we have such an, something so special right here in ann arbor i was like he's like we can truly transform this community we can tra we can be we can go deep we can make an impact right here and be a, a part of something truly special here Or we can spread ourselves out and try to make as much money as possible is that is that kind of what was going through your mind like we, there's so much special stuff happening right here we can be a part of this really great community that's evolving right now like i don't want to put again i don't want put words into your up but was that were you feeling any of that
1: without a doubt i mean yeah. that we're word- lucky and i think we sometimes forget but we're lucky max and i think nashville is like one of the most exciting cities in the world and especially for hospitality and what's also what we've learned that is so unique about nashville as opposed to some of the other cities that some of our other friends have restaurants in people cheer you on in this city they want you to do well they want you to be successful they want your restaurant to to be wonderful in other cities. They're looking for reasons why they want you to fail. Mm-hmm. And when you're a part of a community like Nashville is as supportive, as it is as fast as it's growing, how wonderful it is. It's hard to want to go outside of it. Yeah.
0: So after paradise park, you open Ariel. you open bar 23 closes. And then in 2009, you open Patterson house. Um, where, Where? how did you get uh paradise park and Ariel to the point where you could, get a third restaurant going again and not just any restaurant, like you said, a really a challenging concept. Uh, how did you remove yourself from those two other restaurants to be able to handle such a big project?
1: Um, really great people working with us, right? At the end of the day, it comes down to making sure that we had a really great management team on the ground every day, managing it. The other thing is it was both Max and I, yeah. right? We have two of us. And yeah. so at that point it wasn't, like I was the only one being spread thin. Both Max and I were just spread a little bit thinner. But we also just had a really wonderful team and still do running running the restaurants.
0: Were you going out looking for these opportunities or were they coming to you?
1: No. Uh, so I went to Chicago and had a drink at a place called the Violet Hour. Okay. And freaked out. Why? It was just one of the most ex- like amazing experiences I've ever had in my entire life. I absolutely fell in love with the process, the story. I loved the products. I loved the bartenders. I loved the room. I loved every single thing about that project that I came home just
0: inspired. It sounds
1: like completely inspired. And I was like, Max, we're going to Chicago. Let's go. And I took him and I took one of our ops people. I was like, what do you think? Like, am I insane? But is this like, or is this like that damn cool? And both of them were like, this is unbelievable. And so I literally called up the people, part of the team that opened up the Violet Hour and was like, where are you from? What's your story? Where are you? And they're like, we're in New York. I'm like, well, let's go meet New York. Uh, and so we met these guys, we partnered with these guys, and we opened the Patterson House.
0: Okay, this is really interesting because I don't think most people would be comfortable doing what you did. To call somebody who you respect and admire and say, I want to recreate what you did, help me. Why do you think we don't do that? I mean, you do, but why is it important to do what you did, to be willing to reach out to somebody?
1: I reached out as a fan, yeah. right? Like I know it sounds weird, but like I was like, hey... I think my email was very short my or whatever. I think it was an email that I sent that was like, just want to let you, I looked you up, found your info. Just want to let you know what you guys created in Chicago. Um, completely inspired me. Congratulations and kudos. And I was like, PS Nashville's a booming city. If you ever have any interest, please let me know. And I think they sent a very generic response back that was like, Hey, thanks so much. Glad you enjoyed it. If you're in New York, let's grab a drink. Okay. right, Like, okay, cool. Like nothing. I didn't have any ulterior motives at the time, other than like wanting to, to continue to feel inspired. And I think if I can surround myself with people that inspire me, then I'm going to continue to be more and more inspired. And so that's where the ethos of that was. And I got to hang out with them and get to know them. And and they're amazing humans.
0: So Is this the first time that you kind of reached out to a different group of people who were separate from your restaurant group who are outside to collaborate with them and to
1: bring them in on a project? Do you hear us prepping right now? I have no idea what they're doing. I apologize. (laughs)
0: Um, We are in a restaurant. This is to be expected. There's no problem.
1: I actually wonder if they're like playing the drums. I don't know what's happening. Um, Is it the first time we reach out? No, because I will be the,
0: I can, I can feel Jordan out there going, who's doing that?
1: Oh my God. I'm (laughs) petrified. Um,
0: Jordan I, is our marketer, publicist. Is that unit? Yep, yeah, she does. She's probably uh, having a gardening. panic
1: attack right now. I don't, she's probably. got <laughs> her birthday today. I feel bad making you be here. Um,
0: I think that, I like to say behind every great restaurants, is a great person. I think that we can benefit most from our time left together just to figure out how you do business. Because if we, I'll get lost in the details yep. if, if you let
1: me, I'm so, old. I got a lot to cover, so yeah. I understand. And I'm
0: just uh, going to keep this in the recording because it's. For me, it's just you know I'm about, I'm about transparency around us, just like yep. you, right? So there's so much for you that you've accomplished, like, and this is the kind of stuff where we're getting into, like your approach, your willingness to go reach out to people outside of your organization to just to, to give them admiration and like what what happens when you just tell people you respect them and you admire them? Is that is that something you do often to, to create new opportunities for yourself, or is it just a byproduct of being? A nice guy and reaching out to people. <laughs> I don't do it. As,
1: I don't have any motive in an outcome for those. But yeah. I do think that um, letting people know is that something that has inspired you is a really nice feeling, right? Like, look, we get complaints every single day in our restaurants. Every single day, we make someone unhappy. We don't mean to. We don't want to. We don't try to. But every single day, it happens, and it makes me sad. But I feel a lot of those complaints or unhappinesses personally Mm. that when someone reaches out like, hey, I had a great experience. One of your restaurants, the magnitude of that comment is 100 times what it should be in a normal human psyche. Mm -hmm. But people that are in the restaurant business understand it or want to be there, understand it. Like it's always nice to hear hear something positive. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes people don't always take the time to do that. Um, and I don't have any motive behind it. I just want to let someone know. So I guess that that what I was going to say was, um, I've reached out to people all the time, right? Asking questions, looking for help, asking for favors, trying to get guidance, trying to let people know like, man, I love that cup you chose. I love that thing you chose just to let them know. I appreciate what they do. And so when people call me now and they say, Hey, do you have an hour? Can I meet with you? I'm looking to open a restaurant. I would be the biggest uh, bad person in the world if I said no. I've called in thousands of those favors. Mm-hmm. And so I try and do that all the time um, to sort of let them know what, the pit, what, I, what pitfalls I faced uh, so that they can probably try and avoid some.
0: Yeah. So I think um, I think it makes sense to kind of look at, instead of trying to go down and focus on all these openings, I want to focus on just strategic hospitality as a group and how your systems within strategic hospitality have evolved and you have evolved over the years. So can you think of the evolution of strategic, like the, the, the the changes you made internally to evolve as a restaurant group? When I say these sort of things, what's going through your mind?
1: It makes it sound much bigger than we are. Yeah. And I think that's a, a misnomer of a lot of people look at the business and it's, they think it's way bigger than it actually is. Okay. Um, But I think that the core of what you're asking is like what we've had to change as we've grown. Yeah. Um, And I think there's a lot of those things. I think one of the things that we've changed because we get so inspired by other people is a lot of the folks that we've had, that we've had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with in one of the other restaurants, we have had the opportunity to open restaurants with Mm. right. And to me, that's like one of the coolest things in the world. Like Josh, who, who, um, was our opening GM at the Patterson house was the complete inspiration behind opening up the capper Seat. Yes, And now is a, a, a bastion is we're a partner with him and bastion, his restaurant. Like those are the things that like, that is one of the things that I get goosebumps thinking about. And I absolutely love, cause I think Josh is one of those talented people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, and so th- I think if you're talking about what we've been able to do, we've been able to sort of grow that way.
0: So was that intentional or did it just happen? Completely just happened. Uh, But I mean, I think, and I'm happy that it just happened, but I think it needs to be more intentional in our industry. Like your job as a restaurateur is to create opportunity for other people, right? And these people are who, if you can attract onto yourself, these talented, passionate people, and if they are true hospitalitarians, like they're in this game, they're going to go on and do their own thing. You might as well be the means for them to go on and do that thing like did this click at you or was this kind of just happening like were they coming to you and being like hey like i'm gonna go do my own thing and are you like well don't go like how can i help or were you being like do you want to do your own thing how did these things unfold
1: no i think look when josh moved to picked up his entire life moved from minnesota to nashville tennessee to be the gm of a tiny cocktail bar that everyone told him would never work in nashville tennessee did you recruit him from from minnesota Uh, yeah he um yeah we did Okay. Yeah. How did you even know he was there? Were you just our partners in New York had known him in Minnesota, uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, he worked at a wonderful restaurant uh, in Chicago um, and had never bartended before. Yeah, but we, we we needed him to be the GM of bartender. So
0: in your mind, are we were like, we need to go look to bring talent in, and we need to recruit. Is that what was happening, or?
1: Um, I think that we knew we needed someone that could tell the difference between, you know, a great cocktail and a mediocre mm-hmm. cocktail. And, and Josh was, was the right guy at the right time. It wasn't an intentional like, oh, we've got to hire someone. It just sort of came to be that, that um, Toby and Jason, our partners, at the Patterson house knew Josh. Josh was at the time looking for a job. Josh came to Nashville to visit. Josh is an amazing human. And we were like, yeah, we got to find a way to work together.
0: At any point, did you kind of figure out that this is the formula? It's not about me and what I want to do, but taking care and thinking of the people who are on my team and what they want to do. And if we can redirect our energy and doing that, that's the key. You, is that like, int-
1: I think we always want to be help people grow their careers. I, I think the reality is it's easier to look back and say, Oh yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense that Josh would eventually own his restaurant. Right. Yeah. But at the time we were taking what was a back of house guy into the front of house to be a GM. We didn't really know he could really, really cook. Right. He cooked a brunch at our mom's house when he first moved here. And that's when we all looked at each other like, holy shit, this is the best thing we've ever had. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, okay, how can we keep working together? Right. What, what can we do? And there came a point at the Patterson house where we were a few years into it and you know, that's a, it's a grind. It's hard. And we were like, Josh, you know, wh- what would you want to do in your dream scenario? And that's where the catbird seat came from. Right. And so, um, I think it's easy to look back on, but I think in the moment you don't really quite know where people are, or what people are thinking or what they want to do in their career. Gotta ask. And so we ask and yeah. we talk to them. And and in those moments when we finally get to, yeah, our goal is to continue to grow with people for without a doubt.
0: Why don't you think restaurant tours open that dialogue with their team? Where, what do you want? What's your dream? Why doesn't that happen?
1: You know, I think for me, sometimes there's a fear of, of what that outcome is going to be, right? There's a little bit of risk there. Like, Hey, Josh, what's your, what do you want to do? He's like, I'm going to go open to my own restaurant. And then they're like, Oh wait, okay, hold on. What does that mean exactly? And then in your mind as the restaurateur, you could feel like, Oh, well, this guy's a short-term person. That's not going to be here all the time. Uh, he's going to go do his own thing. Or you can say, you know,
0: what's different with you and what's happening in your mind to not see that as a threat.
1: I, I think that I really want to find ways to work with people. Whatever that with means, right? More involved, less involved. My One of my goals is to really, I think, try and find ways to work with people for as long as we can and get to know them. You know, Julia, who's our partner at Henrietta Red, we all went to school together, like middle school and high school together, right? So like, that's a, a relationship there. She just happens to be one of the most talented people that I've met. And then we get to do a restaurant with her. Like, that's a pretty great jackpot. Yeah.
0: So how... Now that, you know, if we move to more present day, 2020, 2021, um, what is, what is your role in the business today? What is, what is the life of, you know, from like the wake up to you go to bed, are you doing the same thing every day or or where do you put your energy?
1: You know, the business well enough to know it's not the same day every (laughs) day. Uh, I put my energy into, um, I try and set some goals on quarterly basis uh, and then an annual basis. And they're very small goals. Um, you know, but I, I try and really, um, focus on some of those things. Um, as well as I truly believe that restaurants that are not trying to get better every single day are inherently getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so not only is my role to try and grow the business and grow the people we're working with, but it's also to go back into the restaurants that we already have and try and find ways to keep pushing them forward. So we're never regressing.
0: How, how, do you go about that process of growing your people
1: in, in terms of what levels? Are you I mean, just, like you said,
0: like one, what your focus now is growing people, are, do you have framing in place? Do you have, do you say, okay, like if you join this restaurant, like here's where you can be and here's how you can get there or like, what is your approach to growing people? Do you have an approach?
1: Yeah. Is, I, I think that we've struggled with that in the past, right? So I think one of the weaknesses is how do we have those conversations with everybody in the restaurant? Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's tough to do sometimes. But I think that that is where one of the things I really want to focus in on. It's easier to have that with the higher level folks, right? Chefs, managers, whatever that looks like. But to me, I think there's all of these gems that are servers and bartenders that, that we need to have those conversations with.
0: Okay. Has there been evolution for you as a, an operating person, like, like a, the operating mind of a restaurant tour. Do you look at business different now versus you did then? Like when it comes to like the literal operations of a restaurant, have you evolved your operations?
1: Yeah, we're actually working on that right now. Like, you know, I've never used the words tech stack in my entire life <laughs> up until, you know, two months ago, but really going into, you know, what our point of sale system is, how's that going to talk to our payroll system? How's that going to talk to our HR system? How's that going to talk to, um, know the, the metrics of a restaurant in real time and give ourselves the tools to really zero in on what some of those things look like.
0: So what path are you choosing and why
1: are you choosing that path? Um, I'm trying to think of how to say this without getting too specific on like the exact, like the actual provider, unless you want me to, but, um, I can go even broader. Why
0: is tech stack so important today?
1: I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that is really important is that everyone's aligned in the mission and the goals. And and really focused in on on what those were, right? And so at the Catbird Seat, for example, when we opened that with Josh and Eric, we just wanted to have a a really great restaurant that allowed them the creative freedom to do whatever they wanted to do. And in that scenario, we weren't zeroed in on all of the metrics on the day we opened, which was a a miss, right? It was just, it was something that we should have been more focused on than we were. Um, But- I think as restaurants age and get bigger, and and there's more ability to 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 focus in on all your costs and your metrics and all of those things, um, we we have to focus on as a business.
0: Well, I think what you said is true, and I think Andy Little, Chef Andy Little from Josephine, just down the street, can re- he reinforced this is like the first couple months to like year in a new concept, like you're still trying to figure out where your identity is. You know, like, and you have to be willing to be a little bit malleable because what you think you are might not actually be what the consumer thinks you are. So you have to be ready to kind of pivot and adapt. So it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to be super hyper focused on the metrics until you've figured out what your groove is, right? And then you can start saying, okay, let's be. We know what we are now. Let's st- let's be what we are even better.
1: Yeah, right? I, I would agree with that. I think that you know, <laughs> we're lucky in certain respects where a lot of the stuff that we've been able to do has come to fruition as we hoped that it would um and the market the guest told us like hey that's kind of a cool thing and you can keep doing it but there are other things where it's like oh man i i wish that we got to do it exactly what we had in our head but the market's telling us we got to do a little bit differently um but i think at the end of the day that those are things that we want to be hyper aware of and then also just knowing that this is a business right like Not only is my livelihood tied to it, but man, we got a lot of people we work with that's livelihoods for, you know, tied to this now. And I feel that is the weight I feel more than anything is, is that in making sure that we're running sound business practices. And if we're going to do that, then it's really, you know, paying attention to the business side of the business. And with that goes into the nerdy tech stack we just spoke about.
0: Have, Have your businesses, in your opinion, become more sound, financially sound, more operationally tight over time? Yes. What were the key things you did? You, you started doing to, to get to that point?
1: Um, I think that for me, becoming more confident in my abilities at, in the business, right? So at first, when we opened up 23, we had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. We were just like hanging on for deal lives. We're like icing down beers in three bays. We're like, oh my God, what are we doing? How are we going to do this? How are we getting orders? Like it is it is so fast and furious. And we're really trying to just keep up with unlocking the door and locking the door at the end of business and just the operations Um, And so I think the more comfortable we've gotten with the process of opening, then we've been able to focus really on the metrics more and have those, you know, we call them weekly snapshots that show the performance of the restaurant. Um, But I think that's really what what's allowed us that opportunity is a work with really talented people that are able to stabilize business way faster. Um, B surround ourselves with really smart people that understand how the metrics should look and then C allow ourselves the ability to actually get the data that we need out of these restaurants To provide to the management, so then they can run even more sound restaurant management.
0: Can you do you know the evolution and what that looked like? Like, were there certain things that you started implementing in your business? Say, I don't know, five years in, then ten years in, and now where are you today? Like, what does that evolution look like?
1: That's a really good question. So I think that um, we we have these really we used to have these like really rudimentary Excel workbooks. And on it was like what we call our daily sales report, our DSR. And you enter in, you key in all of the sales, your credit cards, your cash, your voids, your comps, whatever that might look like, all your credit cards, all the things go into that. And it builds out, you know, basically an end of day report. And that was an Excel, Excel worksheet. Tied into that was like your schedule. So you knew your labor and tied into that was your food, like order guide and showed you food. But I mean, you're talking about like...
0: It's a lot of data
1: entry. It's a lot of data (laughs) entry and managers are like, this is insane. You get one number wrong too. It throws off the entire system. And that's like, it's four in the morning. Someone's closing out and they just superimpose a number, but they're there for an extra hour. And you're like, no, no, just leave. We'll we'll figure it out in the morning. Yeah. But managers, you know, myself included, we don't want to do that. We don't leave it for somebody else to do. Yeah. So, so that was like the first system out of that came this thing called the daily snapshot that we use. I'm sorry, the weekly snapshot that we use. So you take that, um, data entry, data entry. It gives you a report. The next manager meeting, which we do every week, you took that report and you said, here are the metrics from the restaurant. You hit your sales goals. You missed your food cost goals. You did all But that's the sheet that we used. So that was like phase two. But again, it's all based off of this really rudimentary Excel workbook that was prone to error. Um, And so like we were hand doing inventories, all of these things. And so, but while that was step one and then this weekly snapshot with Excel was step two, Mm that was a massive shift, right? Like even to get step one was hard. Weekly snapshots was really hard and we did it. What was hard
0: about the weekly snapshot?
1: It's, it's hard because it's the accumulation of hundreds and hundreds of entries on a weekly basis. And if if any one of them was wrong, your snapshot report was wrong. Yeah. And it was wrong every week. It was close enough to get the essence of what we're talking about, but it wasn't like perfect yeah. because every inherently someone's going to make a mistake.
0: Now what was your objective with the weekly snapshot?
1: Cheer the managers on or have the conversations like what do we need to fix this? Yeah. Right? What are we going to do? We cannot waste. We cannot run a 50% food cost. It will not work as a business and then give them give people the power to make those adjustments. Yeah.
0: You you have to track it because if you don't track it you don't know if you're trending in a good direction or a bad direction, right? Yeah. Um so when you saw that something was trending in a bad direction. What was the process to get it going in the right direction?
1: Um, conversations and then putting our head down and doing the work to fix it. Right. So when we bought merchants, um, the, the reason we bought merchants, I'm just going to give a quick snapshot and I'll tell you the point of this, but, um, we bought merchants because they were going to do what some restaurants do, which is absolutely terrible. They were going to close and not tell anybody. they were going to padlock the door. They'd have 70 employees show up to the business and they couldn't go in. Right. That is, It felt terrible. Yeah. We had Paradise Park next door, uh, and we had the opportunity to walk into merchants, not even close the business. So we walked in on a Sunday at midnight and said, we're your new owners. Sorry, we closed the deal Sunday at midnight or whatever it was. Walked in on Monday morning to an all-staff meeting and said, we're your new owners, and here's the vision for this restaurant. We're going to try and keep it open as long as we can. But we had no real capital at that point to do this. So I moved my office into the prep kitchen. And every order that came in went under IRAs board. We a declining budget the whole nine. Um, and that's really rudimentary and very simple. But when metrics start going off, sometimes it's just getting back to the basics. And those are the conversations that you have with managers, managers and chefs and people that are affecting these. is we said, let's go. week, Just one week. Let's track this. Let's see what it looks like. How can we fix this? And then it's a give and take relationship, right? Hey, I don't think this menu item should be on here because it's costing too much. Okay, cool. What replaces it? or why are we wasting this, all this food or why are we ordering all this stuff. And so to me it's a, it's a team of people again aligned to the common goal or the mission and then working together to fix it, but you have to have the information to your point to actually know that you're fixing something. Yeah.
0: What what's what gets tracked gets measured, what gets measured gets minded or something like that. I can't remember. There's a bunch of uh, sayings out there. But so you start with the spreadsheet and then you go from the spreadsheet, tracking all this, to getting all this data. Then you go to the weekly meetings where you're basically saying, here's where we are now. Here's where we said we would be. Did we do it? No. Why or why not? What's the correction? Let's get it right the next week, right? Okay. Um, what happened after that?
1: Uh, we did third party liquor, beer, and wine inventory okay. to give us a theoretical cost and actual cost. Uh, and then at that point, shortly after that, not shortly, but after that, then we got a, a, a bookkeeper internally that would verify the weekly snapshots um, that said, you know what? They're not perfect, but they're pretty damn close. And this will tell you the story that you need to know right now of the restaurant without having to close the books out. Right. Cause okay. that's a whole process.
0: Would you have gone to knowing what you know, know now, would you have gotten the accountant first and then the inventory management? Or do you think you went in the right order? Inventory management, then accountant.
1: Um, You know, I think having a controller, a bookkeeper, an accountant is probably the really, really smart move, Um, especially for people in the industry. Like my brother and I, we're in the restaurants and we're grinding it out. And our focus is not always on the on the numbers at times uh, when we're that young and just doing that. I think having someone minding the P's and Q's on that is is a really, really good move.
0: And like what happened for you and your brother when
1: you did get that? What What did that mean for you and your brother? Stability and structure and making sure that we weren't missing stuff. Got it
0: um, so growing beyond this, so now you're relying less on people, more on well people, but you're outsourcing right as what was determining what when you outsourced? Was it somebody saying you should really outsource for this, or was it a matter of getting the cash flow so you could outsource for it?
1: cash flow, okay, yep.
0: Uh, was there an evolutionary point beyond getting to that point where you're outsourcing and getting inventory management as far as tech stack goes, and the evolution of systems and processes?
1: I've never used the word tech stack until very recently, <laughs> right? I, but I, I also am somewhat naive in in we were used to be point of sale agnostic. We just wanted the cheapest thing we could get that would work and that our staff would enjoy.
0: Has your opinion changed on that? Yeah. Why?
1: Um, because I realized I made a lot of mistakes previously. Yeah, I mean, why is
0: that not the way to go?
1: Um, I think that when, for us, we have multiple restaurants operating and, um, it's way easier to train staff when you're running the same systems in all the restaurants, it's way easier to pull reports out. It just makes life simpler. And while it might be, I mean, in this case it's not, but it might be slightly more expensive on the POS setup. You're saving 10 times that amount of money on everything else.
0: Where and how are you saving the money?
1: Um, mistakes and loose ends. So if you, you know, for example, we were running five different POS systems amongst our restaurants,
0: you talk about the importance of, you know, standards, right. And consistency with your menu. Why would that be different in the back of house? As far as like consistency, as far as making your life easier, streamline, right?
1: Right. It's a POS system. And here's the honest truth. We inherited systems, Mm -hmm. right? So my, we bought a used micro system Mm -hmm. at bar 23 so micros was it. Yeah. And then we didn't have any money when we did the music venue. So we used uh, we used the touch cash registers okay. because it was a live music venue. Yeah. Uh, and then you had, I felt like I had to upgrade to Aloha <laughs> yeah. at paradise park. Right. And then we used all of these different, you just sort of inherit or uh, inherit some systems. You get to know some sales reps that convince you this program is different. And before you know it, you look up and you're like, None of my restaurants are on the same damn platforms.
0: I mean, I mean, I, I just can only imagine for whoever's responsible, your accountant for getting all these different reports coming in, in like the formats different. Maybe the I don't know. I've I've never had to do that, and I've never had the same experience you've had with such different systems. But I can only imagine that kind of causing troubles down the line, right? or ca- Causing problems for the wh- wherever that information is going as far as streamlining
1: process. One hundred percent.
0: So now that you, what I mean, you just recently. Uh, started with a new tech stack what did you guys decide to go with
1: uh, so we're actually we haven't done it we haven't made a change yet oh, right have? so um w- we are putting toast pos in all of our in all of our restaurants which okay. most of them had already had toast pos but there are a few outliers that did not well that they are all getting toast pos yeah um and with toast comes the ability to sort of build on top of this cloud-based system that just allows things to be simpler Got it. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great. Man, options. that sounds nerdy, doesn't it? That is not the well, uh, the sexiest part of this business. But I
0: mean, that we got to get into the nerdy <laughs> stuff, you know. And it helps. And it's funny because, like, within Restaurant Unstoppable Network right now, which is the community that's behind this podcast, where we kind of get together and discuss the things that we're talking about right now. I've always I would lean the direction of say when it comes to um, technology, like cash flow, kind of determines. Start. You need to know how to do everything. Without technology, right? I think you should have a rudimentary understanding of how things work in case things go down or whatever in case There's a solar flare and all Technology crashes at once like your business still needs to go on or whatever Um, You should know how your business runs and I would I would have said you know Start with something like QuickBooks and then graduate to like a restaurant 365 or something like that Uh, but now I have people who are kind of arguing and saying, hey, because of the, the future of the industry and because of how much we're going to rely on technology and because of technology being, we, we got to think that technology might replace the majority of our workforce, the, our human equities and it become technological equity, right? So you need that that consistency. You need to be able to really lean on that because we might have to because it's hard to lean on people right now, right? So you need that security. So you need to think from day one, what is the future and how are we going to be prepared for the future? And maybe now it's time to budget, just like you have to budget to buy a stove to cook whatever it is you're cooking. you got to budget to buy the tech stack to support your business in the future. And it's hard. That there's a shift that's happening right now where you really have to. Do you, I mean, do you agree with what I'm saying or like what, no, what's going I, through your mind?
1: I, I do agree with it. I, what I'll tell you, though, is I think that it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, I opened a place when I was 23 uh, I'm 42 now. When I opened the place, it was almost all cash. It was a lot of cash transactions, not, not almost all, but it was a lot of cash transactions. I was writing checks out of a checkbook at the time to give to distributors, COD. Um, then we transitioned to QuickBooks. We were running payroll. But now it's it you can build that nerdy tech stack. The only thing that I would say is it doesn't matter which path you go as long as you know the granular details of how those things work. And that is the the thing that I've learned I am so blessed by the lessons I've learned early on in my career because I've done all of that, right? I've written the checks. I've had to run the P.L.S., I've had to pay the liquor tax and the sales tax. I've had to run payroll myself. I've had to do those things. So I understand what the goal is, what the outcome should be uh, whether I was good enough to do it or not. But if you're building a tech stack, it's very easy to sit passively and listen to the installers or the reps that are like, it's easier to do it this way. But if you don't understand what that easy way is built upon, There's a lot of mistakes that can go into that. Yeah. And to me, making sure that whatever path you go down, which technology is 100% the future here. Yeah. In my opinion, I feel very fortunate that I understand all of those building blocks in which that technology is built upon to make sure that I'm not getting bamboozled.
0: Yeah. But I mean, you think of like 10 years from now, right? When it is so status quo to open with a tech stack, right? Because so much of your business is going to be dependent on that. Do you think we're going to be in trouble when people don't know how to run a business if their tech crashes?
1: I think for sure some people will be. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is no doubt. And not not only when tech crashes, but it may not be built. Like even when you talk about programming a point of sale system, that can be programmed a hundred different ways. And unless you understand what you're looking for at the outcome, you may be programming your entire P- entire POS system that doesn't even allow you to get an accurate inventory. Yeah.
0: I mean, even just having this conversation, I think now is kind of where we're going to transition the conversation to um, the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. And I really want to spend a lot of time on this idea of transformation. Uh, as we go into the future, something I don't think we've ever really been good at is going into the future intentionally and like thinking like what are the if we choose to go in this direction, like what does that mean? What are the long-term effects of this, right? Are we raising the bar of entry by making it like you, like to the point where you can't get into this industry unless you are a tech guru? Like, there's or are we, are we the, the cost that's going to be associated with that, the, the, the complexity that's going to be associated with that? And if you don't have these things, you won't be able to compete with the guy down the street because they're relying on five hundred dollar a month tech stack bill versus you relying on all these people and all this human these human elements that are way more expensive than that when you think about paying for people like are we keep are we raising the bar so high that it's going to be so hard to become a restaurateur?
1: I don't think so, and I don't think so only because you don't have to do it that way. Yeah. Right? The stuff that we're talking about um is a is a want and not a need. And I think that also look, there are places in Nashville, Tennessee that I can't afford to rent. Yeah. in a restaurant. So that that is always there foundationally. Um but do I think there are advantages if it takes you 12 minutes to pull a report rather than 12 hours to pull a report? Yes, there are advantages to that. But do I think the person that's running that takes 12 hours to pull a report doesn't have the chance to be successful? I don't believe that. Because that that was me a long time ago. We had no bells and whistles. We had no manager.
0: But that was also you in a world that had no bells and whistles. Whereas a new enter, somebody who's meant entering into this industry in five years is going to be entering into a very technological world where... I mean, maybe the technology is going to get more affordable, which is something that I'm also not considering because there's going to be more competition, right? So maybe it's just going to be maybe because we can lean more on technology and not on human labor, it's a good thing because now we're lowering the bar. So like, there's that back and forth, yep. right?
1: And I agree with that. Look, I think that this was a conversation that didn't exist. I have a four year old son. He picks up an iPad. He knows how to use an iPad. Yeah. Like that, their rate, that, that whole, that, people younger than me, have way more technological abilities than I do. Um, And I think that that is the way the world is going. You're 100% right. But I think the baseline of knowledge to even from where I was, whatever it was 20 years ago, to where I am now, I've learned a lot. But people that are starting now just have a baseline way higher than I've ever had.
0: Yeah. You know, after saying it, I I think if I had to choose a path of what's what's likely to happen in the future, I would assume that the technology is going to get better is to become more affordable, and it's probably going to make barrier of entry easier. And I think you're seeing that right now. With now, you can start with a you know in a commissary kitchen and have nothing but a digital storefront, and that barrier of entry is way lower. Like your biggest expense, the brick and mortar, is now you share a space with ten other people, and you can share the costs. Yep. Right. So that I mean, I think there is some good that's coming of this. But do, would you, if I say this statement, do you think there's problems in our industry? Yes. Where are the problems in your opinion? What, what does have to change?
1: Oh, I mean, I think it's a whole lot of things. It depends what, what topic we want to, what's the most important what we want to go down. You know, I think the, well, um, you know, I think what people are talking about now more than anything is, is getting good people working in restaurants, right? Mm-hmm. How do we do that? How do we make that work for everybody? Um, not just one side of that coin. How do we do that? I don't have an answer to that one. I think that, you know, there, you can have a lot of simplistic things personally. Like, you know, I really want to try and get to know people and, and hear what their goals or hopes and their dreams or aspirations are. I know for me, one of the joys that I get from what I do for a living is, um, you know, just about a, a week or two ago, I had a, a, an old server that worked with me seven years ago, reach out and was like, Hey, I'm looking to move jobs. And you're still one of my references. Wow. Right. Like that's really amazingly cool and, and legitimately gives me goosebumps to talk about. Um, so I think it's all relationship building in a lot of ways. Um, and then I also think that, you know, people like myself that own restaurants have to be willing to adapt to to the universe today.
0: Yeah. Um, so again, back to this idea that, that there's a lot wrong with our industry. Um, again, our mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. How would you like to see the industry transform?
1: I think that one of the things that people outside the industry don't know is how hard the industry is on a day-to-day basis, just to, to do the simple things, right? You you walk into a restaurant and you're expected to be served food, but there is hours of work that go behind that. There's a team of people that went, that go into making that food, serving that food, busing that food, cleaning that food, food. all of those things. (laughs) And I, I think understanding that, you know, um, that it's not just as simple as walking in, sitting down, and eating.
0: Who's who needs to understand this?
1: I think you know. Quite frankly, I think a lot of people do.
0: Yeah. Why Why do they need to understand it?
1: Uh, I think it, it it takes away some of the uncomfortable conversations that happen. You know, you talk about people that get so upset that they have to wear a mask in a restaurant. Like, yeah. I mean, let's let's be honest right now, or don't have to wear a mask in a restaurant. Like you can, whatever political side or whatever health side you want to be on. You know, the fact that that turned into an issue for a server or a host to deal with. Um, is a very difficult situation.
0: How do you think we got here to the point where people don't understand and just assume that, you know, we're a bunch of knuckleheads? (laughs)
1: Um, I, I I don't know. I I think that there are, you know, look, I have people in my life that, um, um, my job, what I really want to do is make people happy Yeah, and I try and do it all the time. And it's a slippery slope between making someone happy and making them feel like they can always do whatever they want to do. Yes. And, and that is the, the, I think one of the issues for me, like I'm just speaking personally, like I have people that text me all the time and they're like, Hey, I'm going to rando city. What restaurants would you go to? Uh, okay. I'll go do the research. Let me go find <laughs> out. Cause I want to take care of you because yeah. that's what I, that's like the, to my core. Yeah. But then it's like, you know, they keep doing dude. And then it's hard to, to feel. And the same goes to restaurant folks, right? Like, are, we want to make people happy we wouldn 't be in the industry if we didn 't want to, mm-hmm. but there are times when you you 're unable to make yeah. people happy all the time
0: i mean and I was trying to to get you to say it, but i'm i 'm right there with you, and I think that we 're to blame because we 've been taught our like everybody in this industry is always reacting to what the consumer wants, what the customer wants. And I think because of that, we just we're just so afraid of them not liking us. What if they don't like us? That we collectively as an industry have reacted ourselves into this corner where we can't react anymore because we're going to fall off if we do. Like yeah. We were hanging on. And I think what needs to happen is we need to do exactly what we're doing right now is to say we need to make changes. This industry is suffering because we give, 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 give and don't take so we can then give to our employees and to – we are in this situation because we fight against each other because we keep secrets close to each other. We don't communicate, right? And I think we need to start communicating not just with each other, but more importantly with the consumer and saying, listen, like you need to understand what it takes to do this. And it comes with a cost. And this is what that cost is. And it's a percentage, you know, and, and like and that's the, and here's the equation. We'll show our work. Yeah, you know, and I think collectively, what's going through your mind is as like I want to hear you, like. But are you, do you no, agree or disagree? I,
1: I, I agree. I think that I'm thinking back to like it's really it's not one thing. It's a death by a thousand cuts. Yes, right. And I'm laughing to myself because we have a there's always the person that wants the 7:30 reservation, right? Always, And yep. We just can't always do it, but you always try and do it. You're like, what about 7:33, 7:35, 7:40? Like we're gonna get a table. I can't. But we opened the catbird seat. And we had 20 bar stools. And what's funny about that is eventually, well, as, as, as against my core, as, as it was, um, we had to be trained to say, I don't actually, I can't take, I don't have chairs. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do it. And, um, that's jarring for a restaurant tour, right? You're always looking to make people happy, want people to come in, experience the restaurant, doing whatever you can do to do it. And then in that scenario, I was training, like I forced myself cause I had to, I just can't do it today. Yeah. And people get really pissed.
0: I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, right. I can't build a chair, right? Exactly. So that, yeah. That's
1: the, that's the thing. But I think that that death by a thousand cuts is, is really what, um, at least for personally speaking, that hard stop at the yeah. caper seat trained me in a lot of other ways.
0: Yeah, I think it it's um I think we got to start pushing back a little, you know, and I think it's going to be tough, but at the same time, I think it's important that we educate the consumer. Uh the mission statement again one more time, inspire and power transform the industry. How have you transformed personally over the past 15 years?
1: How have I transformed? Wow, that's a that's a big deep question right there, <laughs> isn't it? Um you know, I think that I went into the industry not thinking I'd make a career out of it. Um having an absolute blast i have transformed into um realizing how much i absolutely love what i do for a living in the industry as a whole um and now i i absolutely love the opportunity to not only like zero in on what i want to accomplish personally but i really want to cheerlead for everyone else that's doing really cool stuff um either, either with us or without us uh, so I think that that is a transformation that at, in the very beginning, it was just like figuring out my life and what I want. It sound like I'm 75 years old, by the <laughs> way. Uh, and then really transitioning into in, transitioning to like, man, we've got such a cool opportunity to in this industry to do the most amazing stuff. And I just want to be a long ride for whoever's doing it. Um, so that's one transformation. I think the other transformation that I've had is. Um, it's hard in this industry industry because it's 24 seven. Um, to sort of step back sometimes, but you know, I've got a seven year old and a four year old, um, and really try and focus in and zero in on those moments and times with them outside, completely outside this industry, yeah. um, has been a big transformation for me personally of like being able to separate what used to be 24 hours a day and seven days a week. Um, and really try and pocket time out for myself and my family.
0: So would you say that one of the things you want to see happen in this industry is just a better communal or just collective sense of balance, uh, stop competing, set standards, work life balance and have that be the standard.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that, uh, the work life balance is always tricky for me because I've sort of been able to mold my brother and I work together. We molded some of that. Um, but I also think that, um, What you said is right. Like there needs to be more, a little bit more. For me personally, I'm not speaking for the whole industry, but for me, like the balance there was was definitely needed. Yeah, Uh, I've
0: loved this conversation. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We're going to bust out a true speed round. Today's episode is brought to you by Margin Edge. Margin Edge is a restaurant management software that uses POS integration and invoice data to show you your food costs in real time. The beauty of Margin Edge is that the information is immediately available. You take a picture, and boom, you have access to it just in time. And everything that Margin Edge does is aimed at making your restaurant more efficient. So what exactly do you get with Margin Edge? With Margin Edge, you get automatic invoice processing. You can do this by either taking photos with their app, scanning-slash- Emailing files or integrating it with a electronic data interchange. You can get daily controllable PL, including labor data. You can get recipe costing and menu analysis tools. Not to mention, you also get inventory management and actual versus theoretical usage reports. Margin Edge gives you the prime cost daily. So there are no surprises at the end of the month. By totally digitizing your back office, your team saves hours on paperwork and gets real time data to manage food costs, labor, and budgets. In the moment, not weeks after the period ends. With supply chain disruption and labor shortages, making real-time data-driven decisions is more important than ever. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, Margin Edge will cover your onboarding. That means you get 60 days free to get started and up and running before you make your first payment. To learn more, head to me.marginedge.com com slash restaurant hyphen unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. You know, restaurant unstoppable's mission because I'm constantly echoing it. It's to inspire, empower and transform the industry. And I could not be more excited to be partnering with Diageo bar Academy because they have the same goals in the, I am just filled with hope right now because never before has there been such an abundance of information and resources, and it's because things like Diageo Bar Academy exist. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with the insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're constantly raising the bar on industry standards no matter your background or your skill level there is knowledge and new techniques for you waiting for over at Diageo Bar Academy, that will improve your personal and professional lives. For example, they just launched a new masterclass, Tips for Profitable Menus. With expert tips and step by step guidance, their experts give you all the advice you need to craft exciting and profitable menus. With this masterclass, you'll learn how to create eye catching menu design, how to promote your most profitable drinks, how to understand poor costs and pricing accordingly, and you'll discover how to create well-designed menus that will attract new customers, exceed your regulars' expectations, and maximize upselling and revenue. And it goes far beyond master classes like this. You can also join live events and watch all past master classes on demand at www.diagiobaracademy.com. Whether you're a bartender, owner, operator, or if you're just completely new to the industry, diagiobaracademy.com has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills and stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Diageo Bar Academy is a free online resource for hospitality professionals of all skill levels. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or your business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it Factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success.
1: Oh, hard work, hard work.
0: I might, it's hard for me not to acknowledge that your dad's in the room. Yeah, right. my dad, do you, back, right do you back that up? Dad, we've got to head on that. It is hard work. <laughs> uh, what is your biggest
1: weakness? Um, it would be not delegating.
0: Not delegating. How are you overcoming that? It's a
1: battle every day. No, um, I think that really trying to to build trust and rapport with everyone around um, and, and, and really taking more time to listen to their thoughts. It doesn't mean that, uh, like I said, without going on too long, my way is not always right. Mm-hmm. And I need to take more time to listen to the other ways.
0: What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team, when you're growing, when you're interviewing, what are you looking for? A good person. How do you know they're a good person?
1: Looking them in the eyes, mm. hearing what they have to say. What's your biggest challenge today? Um, the biggest challenge today for us is coming out of COVID and re-ramping up a bunch of restaurants at the same time.
0: Are you coming out different?
1: Without a doubt. How? Tech sack? Tech stack. No, it's, uh, I mean, I think that we're coming out different because the whole world industry and everything has changed in the past 18 months or 20 months. Um, and that inherently changes the business. What's the biggest pivot you've made to be ready for that future? Uh, focusing in more on the people.
0: What is one core value a behavior that you
1: teach your team a way to be a way to act? We want people to make people happy. Yeah.
0: What is one uncommon standard of service? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond.
1: We call it, uh, you know, we stole some things from other restaurant tours that do it really, really well, but we try and find ways to, to dream weave. We want to hear people, what they're talking about at the, the table and, um, go above and beyond for them. However, we possibly can.
0: What is one book that's a must read to makes a better restaurant owner or operator?
1: There's a lot of them. I mean, I think that, um,
0: can't say Dan Meyer sitting on the table.
1: No, I'm not going to say okay. that. I, you know, look, I read Bob Iger's book and I thought it was awesome.
0: Well, what's that book? Do you know the title?
1: Uh, I don't know the title. I think say his name one more time. Bob Iger. He's the uh, old CEO from uh, Disney. Okay. And Dan- just a really cool balanced book of, of human curiosity. And as well as, uh, his business career, you know, one of the things I'll just sort of digress yeah. here, but, um, He opens the book by talking about how one of his crowning achievements of his entire career, being the CEO of Disney after working for that many years was opening up, um, Disney in Asia. Uh, and it was, you know, he's worked basically his entire career while he was a CEO to open up this theme park. And the morning of him opening the theme park is when the child in Disney world in Florida got uh, attacked by the alligator. Oh man. And so we had to balance and reconcile those two things at the same time. And just the human psyche of how he dealt with that was impressive.
0: So what was the biggest takeaway from this book for
1: you? Um, you know, I think that he never, no matter how busy, how crazy he was, he never lost sight of the person that he wanted to be.
0: What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? rest <laughs> probably yeah uh, name one service you've hired or outsourced when i ask this question the intention is I'm trying to help good people connect with good people so what's one thing that you do that you outsource because you never do this as well in-house as you could to have somebody else do it for you uh,
1: I mean, i'm struggling with one i'm like trying to give me multiple like t- yeah 20 of them um,
0: the more is better. I mean, again, the,
1: we the, outsource our bookkeeping and accounting work now. We okay. outsource our inventory processes now.
0: Do you know the name of the company, the companies you outsource? I'm trying to uh, yeah, help you yeah, oh, some like yeah. business. Bev, we use
1: <laughs> Bevanco uh, okay. in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And then we use a company called Vita Finance Services for bookkeeping and accounting. They're mm, amazing. Beautiful.
0: Um, what's one piece of technology you've adopted within the four walls of your restaurant recently that's had a huge impact on communication, profitability, uh, efficiencies, anything along those lines?
1: um toast
0: and what is it specifically about toast that's just been a game changer for you
1: uh cloud based and you're allowed to you're allowed to sort of import and export things into multiple platforms so there you have toast payroll you can run inventory process through it you can run scheduling apps through it so it's really all encompassing and allows everything to talk together
0: yeah and i will say this toast has been a past sponsor toast is an affiliate uh they pay me a thousand dollars every time you guys literally just all you have to do is just click my frigging link. Okay. Click my link. You support this podcast and you have no idea how far that goes. Uh, so
1: Hey had- toast. If you're listening, I'd like the same sponsorship, please. Yeah. I'll <laughs> <laughs> oh, share. <laughs> but did I, did I, did I cue you up?
0: Did I tell you at all that they were a past sponsor? Zero, Not at all. Okay. No, I had no idea. I only promote the tools and services that are
1: being recommended on the show. So that's funny. That's Boom. awesome. I'm glad yeah. other people like toast too. Yes.
0: Uh, and this is the last question. It's a doozy. You ready for it? Listen closely. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be gone with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. I'm a cheesy bastard, man. I lean into it. What, what would those three pieces of wisdom be?
1: Be honest, be kind and surround yourself with amazing people. Yeah.
0: Can I ask your dad a question?
1: Debatable. No, yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, what impresses you the most? What are you most proud of, your son? I should add a little context here. We've been sitting down, recording for almost two hours now. Uh, Benjamin's dad, what's your name? Steven. Steven had just walked in to join us and he's sitting in the corner. And I, I got to know like, wh- I'm sure you're proud of your son. Why are you most proud of your son?
1: With all the success that my boys have gained over the years of being in the restaurant business. Um, The commitment to other people and humility has made me so proud. I think that they're socially conscious and um, they're humble. And I think that they want to give back to society. And I think that's what I'm the most proud about.
0: Yes. And that is so aligned with what we've been talking about today.
1: You should have interviewed him and not me. You're so, you're regretting this, aren't you? No,
0: man, you were great. But the reason why I felt so compelled to bring your dad in is because, the, the purpose of that last question is about legacy is about paying it forward. And this is legacy right here. You know, you're in the next generation. I think we need to, we need to pay forward these values, right? We need to set new standards. So thank you so much, Benjamin, you're a great guest. Well, we, and thank you, Steve, for, for hopping on real quick or Steven was it Steven, Steve, Steve, Steve. Uh, thank you so much for, for being a good sport and doing that for me. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how I find the majority of my guests, uh, I really let the industry decide who should be being made an example of. So, who do you respect and admire? And if there were a guest on the show, a restaurant tour that was a guest on the show, you would be listening to that episode.
1: Am I allowed to say my brother? Absolutely. Yeah, my brother. Of course. I was trying
0: to get a two for a while. I was in town. As yeah. a matter of fact, so I'm happy <laughs> you're calling your brother out. Yeah, my brother. Awesome. Uh, Max, correct? Yeah. Max, look out. I'm coming after you. I'm sure I'll be back in Nashville before long and I'll, you'll be the first person I reach out to. And, uh, how can we connect with you or somebody on your team if we've really just resonated with what you're doing here in Nashville and we maybe we're thinking of moving to Nashville and we want to be a part of your team, what's the best way to connect?
1: Uh, you can call us. You can email us. You can text us however you want. That's all on our website. Um, and you know we, the, the website we off all, the top of your head? Uh, shprojects.co
0: shprojects.co social handles you want to drop on us uh no okay <laughs> i can respect that uh, get in so much trouble <laughs> benjamin thank you so much for taking the time again to share your story your knowledge and your mentorship there is no questioning my man you are
1: unstoppable thank you so much man. i really really appreciate it cheers thank you
0: there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to our guest again, Benjamin Goldberg for joining us into all of our Nashville guests and to the folks who help support us while we're out there. Uh, that's you Brandon still also special thanks to Sean line from Germantown cafe. They just opened and a little teaser. We're creating a documentary with Sean and a few other network members. So stay tuned for the, the revealing of that. Uh, but this is the end. This was the end of our natural interviews and and right off the heels of Nashville, I went out to Tampa so you can expect uh, some Tampa interviews. I I was actually able to get five interviews in two days. And uh, Peter Lazar was a big reason why I was so productive out there. He helped me. Uh, connect with some of the tampa leaders and uh, peter lazar is the author of restaurant strong and uh his interview will be live next week this time and i'm telling you that's an episode you guys are really going to enjoy and then off the heels of his recording we have uh, some of the restaurant tours that he helped me connect with uh but starting december 16th And for the the next five interviews, we have a really special project launching in Restaurant Unstoppable. It's the story of Seven North, which which is its own podcast series. We're actually calling this a narrative-driven, nonfiction, mini-series podcast, which consists of five episodes ranging from 20 to 50 minutes long. And beginning uh, December 16th. And then on the 20th, the 23rd, the 27th and the 30th, basically during the holiday season, we're going to be rolling this series. And we're really excited about this. Uh, this is the, the combination of Sumadre's, uh, m- masterful editing skills. Uh, my ability to interview in, uh, the story of Doug York and seven North company, co- uh, coffee company, which uh, started up in, uh, a year ago. And they, they opened in the middle of this pandemic. And it's such an inspiring story. uh, And something we've never done before. So we're really excited to be sharing that with you. I hope you guys enjoy it. And uh, this week in the network, we have something that I'm excited about. We're going to do like a roundtable on different solutions for creating a new equitable industry, which includes profit sharing, uh, you know, equity sharing. Uh, that that conversation is going to be monday at noon in the network Uh, we're going to explore possibilities so be a part of that too all right that's it for today until next time peace out